a not-quite-zero day, a lock screen bypass, email scams, and Emmental cheese. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do today? I'm great, Doug. And I don't think you mentioned the billionaire Gucci master. He is part of all that and more, of course. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and much, much um, more, Doug. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we do like to start the show with our This Week in Tech History segment. This is exciting for me because I was there, man. This week, on November 14th, 2006, Microsoft released the Zune, a 30-gigabyte portable media player meant to compete with Apple's iPod. Microsoft would make its way through three generations of Zune players, a music subscription service, and a handful of other fits and starts before canning the hardware in 2011 and the software and services in 2012. I uh, was working at TechCrunch at the time, and uh, the general consensus was that not until the Zune HD, which came out in 2009, were we talking about the good Zune, but by then it was too little too late, because the iPod Touch came out in 2007, and I remember covering that event and being awed by such a device. I can't remember the last time I was awed by such a thin mp3 player that could download songs directly to it uh that was the story of the zune for me i would the, the the hardware and the screen though were really good so it was hard to not like it it just was missing something and then they shut everything down so it didn't really matter between the zune and windows phone those were two initiatives by microsoft i really wanted to work and they just didn't quite work i loved my windows phone believe it or not it's always the third version with Microsoft, isn't it? Windows 3. And I thought, great, yeah. the here Zoom we HD, go. And version. as soon yeah. as I fell in love with it, they discontinued it just yeah. when it got good. Well, we can stay on the subject of Apple because, uh, okay, this is not quite a zero day, but it was dangerous enough to warrant an emergency patch. Yes, it wasn't a zero day because it was disclosed responsibly, as far as I know. And it was a bug in a XML parsing library called libxml2. My own Linux distro got an update that happened to include that fix. Now, nobody else seemed to get terribly excited about the libxml2 update. It was just, hey, they found a bug, they fixed it, get the new version. But Apple, just suddenly these updates arrived and they only fixed the libxml2 bugs only for the very latest versions of their operating systems. So Mac OS 13, Ventura, and iOS slash iPadOS 16. So if I'm an Apple user and I'm not running the latest version of either of these operating systems, I'm kind of in the dark about whether I need some sort of update. Am I waiting on an update or is my, my current version, which isn't 13.0 or 16.1, is it safe? That's the problem that we have every time this happens, isn't it? Where there's an update for the latest versions and not the others. So I wish Apple would make it clearer whether there were updates expected for other devices or even why they felt it was necessary to push out an update just specifically for that one library. My best guess is that when they were informed about the bug and their own security people started looking at it, figure, I wonder if you could exploit this. Oh, no! <laughs> it's far too easy. Maybe they found that there was some part of Apple's code that was just, if you like, too close to the edge of the network or the edge of the device that might mean that somebody could quickly figure out how to exploit it. So why not patch it? If so, great. But it would be nice to know that. So I guess the best advice we can give is go to the software update section and see if there's something there. If not... 
sit tight and we'll keep an eye on it. Okay, let's shift gears from Apple to Android. We've got a SIM swap lock screen bypass. And this lock screen bypass is kind of frightening in that it was kind of an accidental discovery, but it could also happen to anybody. So it's kind of serious and Google kind of dragged their feet a little bit uh, fixing it. Yes, Doug. The fascinating thing about this is I couldn't think of a better way to describe it than a SIM swap attack because it involves swapping a SIM card, but it's not what we normally think of as a number porting attack where you go to a mobile phone store and you trick them, cajole them, bribe them, induce them to issue you with a brand new SIM with somebody else's number applied to it. So you can take over their messages, read their two-factor authentication codes and log into their accounts. That's one type of SIM swap. In this case, the bug was caused by somebody who'd restarted their phone. And in this case, because the chap had been traveling and his phone had run out of juice. So he was forced to go through a full reboot. And when you go through a reboot, if you've got a pin set on your SIM card, which you should have, or someone can just steal your phone, remove the SIM card and start receiving all your calls and your texts. And so he got the SIM wrong and you only get three goes. Then you lock yourself out. Now you have to go and get the 10-digit PUC, which is the unlock code for the, for the SIM itself. You only get 10 goes at that, after which the SIM basically destroys itself and is no more use. And he noticed that when he put in the PUC, he realised that he was at the lock screen, but the wrong one. He was at the kind of phone lock screen that allowed him to unlock with his fingerprint, not the, you've just rebooted your phone, you have to unlock properly i.e. with your full passcode. So he figured, I've landed up in the wrong place. This shouldn't happen. I should be locked out of my phone with more than just my fingerprint. And so he was able to find out that he could indeed, if he got the SIM pin wrong deliberately, and he timed it right, he could bypass the lock code on a locked phone. Just like that, Doug. Okay, so where does the SIM swap come in in this case? Well, that's the thing. Imagine that you steal somebody's phone and you realize, oh dear, it's locked. Now you swap the SIM, but instead of trying to swap their number onto a new SIM of yours, you just go to the convenience store, buy a new SIM card, swap it into their phone, and you know the pin on the new SIM card, so you deliberately get it wrong three times. Now you're at the puck code entry, you read the puck code off the packaging because it's printed there, you scratch it off with a coin, there's the magic code. You put that in and bingo, you've done his bypass. If I'm a pickpocket or a criminal or I find a phone on the ground, normally in this day and age, you think, oh, it's useless because it's locked and I'm not going to be able to get into it to wipe it and then sell it. In this case, you can actually you do that by just a cheap or free SIM that you have on your own. You can, you can wipe it and sell it. And as the chap who discovered it, David Schutz, points out, I might be overreacting, but I mean, not so long ago, the FBI was fighting with Apple for almost the same thing. I've got somebody else's phone. Is there a magic way with some special hardware that I can unlock it? And it turns out that with Android, if you got the timing right, yes, there was some special hardware and you could go to a convenience store and buy that hardware off the shelf for a dollar. <laughs> OK, so this is this is serious. So he takes it to Google and they do what? They say, yeah, we're going to fix it right away or not? Uh, I think sort of both of those. Yeah, we, well, we'll sort of, yeah, okay. Uh, we, someone reported this before, but we couldn't get it to work. And then nothing happened and nothing happened. So his disclosure deadline came around and he went to Google and said, I'm going to disclose this. 
but I'm uncomfortable. What are we going to do about it? And fortunately, (laughs) Google then came to the party. And in the November update, he found this back in June, in the November update, they did provide the fix. And bless his heart, he said, look, I'll come to your offices and I'll show you that it does work. And apparently (laughs) he's smart enough to find vulnerabilities and do do bug bounty hunting for a living, it seems. He's not smart enough to realise that when you're in an office building and you don't have a proper SIM ejector tool, there's probably a paperclip somewhere around. So instead of asking for a paperclip, he tried to use a needle and apparently stabbed himself. <laughs> it is now fixed, but you, if you've got an Android phone, do make sure that you have the November update. Okay. Uh, we talked uh, not too long ago about a, a Firefox browser in the browser attack, which I found fascinating. And it uh, looks like we may have the potential for another one thanks to a new full screen bypass. Yes, Firefox 107 came out this week, and I think the extended support release is 102.5. Remember, it's 102 plus 5 equals 107. So that's the non-feature fixes, but all the security fixes. And there's nothing critical. There are no zero days, lots of high vulnerabilities. And the one that caught my eye is a very simple and possibly trivial sounding bug. Well, there's a way to get the browser into full screen mode without popping up that little warning that says, hey guys, the browser's now in full screen mode. Don't forget everything you see is the browser. Press escape or F11 or whatever it is to get back to the regular screen. And you think, like, how harmful is that? But if you remember that browser in the browser attack was where you paint what looks like an operating system pop-up dialog inside the browser window and you trick people into putting, say, a password in there, thinking they're communicating with Windows when in fact they're communicating with the browser. And I think it was one Douglas Armuth who said to people, hey, just grab the window, the fake pop-up if you're suspicious, try and move it outside the real browser window, and if it won't go there, you know you're looking at a fake. So imagine, what's the risk of accidental full screen? Well, then you paint a fake browser window inside which you paint a fake pop-up, and then when the person follows your very good advice, Doug, and drags the fake pop-up, it will go outside the fake browser window <laughs> and you'll go, OK, maybe it's real after all. So the problem with full screen is it means that code running inside the browser, untrusted JavaScript, HTML, CSS, etc., gets to paint effectively any pixel on the screen. I was also thinking a, br- a brilliant way to abuse this. Now, don't do this. Don't try this at home would be to make it seem as though the user's session had for some reason just logged out. So back to your login screen, because it's full screen, and ask you to enter your password. I mean, I have a button on my keyboard that logs me out if I hit it accidentally, and now it wants my password to get back in. Doug, I'm glad you're a colleague of mine, is all I'm saying. (laughs) And not working for the other side. And if I were really enterprising, I wouldn't do this, of course. I, I know that Windows changes the login picture every day to a different beautiful vista. And I would just check which one is going on today. And uh, I would just cycle that every day to the newest one when I knew what the new one was going to be. Are you sure you're not a naughty boy, Doug? Um, So let's get those uh, Firefox browsers updated and uh, move on to what you described as the Emmental cheese attack. Now, if I were writing the headline, your headline was great. It was very descriptive, but you could have drawn people in with the headline just being the Emmental cheese attack or why defense in depth is important. You got to use log for shell in there, which is that'll pull that'll probably pull more people in than cheese. Are you accusing me of 
what I believe is called search engine optimization. I would never. Thank you, Doug. But it is Log4Shell-like, and I did think that people would remember Log4Shell because it's kind of hard to forget. I was worried that if I put Emmental cheese in the headline, that if you don't exactly know that that is a type of cheese that generally has bubbles in it from the gas that's generated while it ferments, and therefore when you slice it, it has circular holes in it. If you don't know that, then I suppose I could have put a picture of a slice of Emmental cheese, <laughs> but that would have been a bit cheesy. Well crafted. Anyway, the affected tool is a thing called Backstage, and I believe it was originally developed as a developer's toolkit for building what are called APIs, application programming interfaces. As the name suggests, it's more of a back-end tool, so you loosely expect it to be inside your network. But nevertheless, if it's part of your business logic services, then you do want to make sure that they don't have any bugs. And I called it the Emmental cheese attack because fortunately it's not just like Log4Shell where lots of servers were exposed inadvertently and you could just send them random HTTP requests and loads of them would fall into the hole of trying to process a string that contained special secret characters that caused them to run unauthorized commands. In this case it was more like having several slices of Emmental cheese with all the holes in and if you can just as the attacker if you just figure out that in this network, the slices are lined up so there is at least one hole next to another hole on every slice, then I can thread a string through there and get through. The good news is, of course, that means that if you can move any one of the slices to a position where there's no hole that goes all the way through, you defend against it. So what are the holes that an attacker would have to thread his or her way through to... Uh... Hit pay dirt. Well, firstly, they'd need to be able to access a server that had the buggy code on in the first place to send a request. That might be possible if you'd already broken into the network, but you had limited access, so you'd compromise the developer's computer so you could make internal API calls. Or it might happen if you just have some services that rely on this that, that are visible externally. But it's a good reminder of some of the supply chain complexity that comes when you use products like Node.js, server-side JavaScript, and the NPM, the Node Package Manager repository, because Backstage contains a thing I think called Scaffolder, which is a plugin that helps you arrange all your various API backends nicely. And Scaffolder uses a logging system called, and don't shoot the messenger, Doug, I, I'm just reporting the name, I didn't make it up. This is a Mozilla tool, I believe, called Noonjux. <laughs> I don't know where they get hmm. these names from. And that's a logging tool. So like Log4j, it has magic characters like dollar, squiggly bracket, squiggly bracket, special stuff in here that might include commands to run on the server side, squiggly bracket, squiggly bracket. And that is wrapped in a thing called VM2, which is another NPM, another node JavaScript module that is a sandbox that's supposed to make riskier JavaScript code a bit safer by limiting what it can do. And unfortunately, the company that wrote found the problem with the whole backstage system, Oxi, their researchers had previously, August this year, found a hole that allowed them to sneak through this VM2 sandbox. So the good news is the proof of concept they produced required the last slice of Emmental cheese still to have the hole in that was patched back in August. So as suggested, the solution is to make sure that one, some, or all of the Swiss cheese slices 
are moved so that there are no holes that go all the way through. And that's easy enough to do by patching backstage and making sure so that your VM2 is patched. Quite a few products use this VM2 sandbox. It's meant to improve security. So you may have VM2 even if you don't have backstage. And we've got all the full version numbers you need to go and look for in the Naked Security article, Doug. Okay, very good. And last but certainly not least, a wild story about business email compromise. We have reached the billionaire Gucci master, currently serving an 11th stretch in the United States of America, Doug. So he's no longer living the high life in Dubai like he was a couple of years ago. Maybe not quite a master if he's in jail, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at the photos that were on his Instagram account, you can see that at least for a while, he certainly wasn't short of money. So he wasn't pretending to be rich, but he was pretending to have acquired his wealth legitimately. He claimed to be a, a real estate wheeler dealer. In fact, as you say, he was part of a so-called business email compromise slash money laundering network. And just to reiterate, business email compromise, it's used fairly generally these days for crimes that are predominantly orchestrated via email that pretends to be from a company. I prefer to keep that term BEC, business email compromise, for where the crooks not only pretend to be sending emails, say, from your CEO or your CFO or someone senior in accounting, but they actually have that person's email password. So when they send their fake emails, they don't just look like they come from the real account. They actually do come from the real account. And as you can imagine, that's quite a simple crime to pull off because you can go on the dark web and buy email passwords. You only need one for the right person. And once you're inside the email, you probably get, if the person's in the accounts department, a surprisingly regular and reliable news feed of which deals are going down, what accounts need paying, and what big accounts are about to get paid in. And so you try and convince either the customer who's about to pay off a debt, or you convince someone in the company itself to pay out to a supplier who's a creditor into the wrong account. And behind the scenes, you have a whole load of money mules and other affiliates in your cybercrime network who are out there going through the know your customer process with banks. So he was bust and apparently he pleaded guilty. He's been in custody for two years, I believe, awaiting trial. He finally decided to plead guilty. He faced 20 years. He got 135 months, which is just over 11 years. So he didn't get the maximum sentence, presumably because he pleaded guilty. And he officially admitted to two very sizable amounts that he'd stolen, one from a company in New York that was close to a million and one from a, a businessman in Qatar, I believe that was also close to a million. So he has to pay back 1.7 million to those victims as part of the whole deal. But what was fascinating to me in this was the information that came out from the investigations that were done into this chap. He's known as Ray Hushpuppy. Fascinating insight into all the moving parts that are needed behind business email compromise scams and how much effort the crooks put into staying just one step ahead of the fraud prevention mechanisms that are in place by each bank in each country for each type of account for transfers between country A and country B and so on. And just realizing, if you like, the holes in their slices of Swiss cheese that they can thread their needles through, if you don't mind me mixing yet another metaphor, Doug. It is enough work that you could probably go out and get like a regular job and probably 
make maybe not this much money, but some some decent, honest money. The amount of work you have to put in uh, keeping track of all these banking regulations and how to move money. I can move it within the UK, but I can't move it to Mexico. And I can't like all these things that he had to think about and deal with. Um, it's a fascinating read if you want to head over there and read the direct report. But we do have some advice for people as far as uh, avoiding business email compromise, starting with turn on two-factor authentication. Indeed, Doug, you might as well make sure that a part stolen password alone or one that was bought on the dark web is not enough for crooks to get in. We've said it many times before that 2FA is not enough on its own. It doesn't magically protect you against all sorts of attack. But it does mean that crooks who don't know how to get hold of passwords themselves, but who go out online and buy them, can't just instantly steam in and start scamming you. And then we've got look for features in your service provider's products that can warn you when anomalies occur. That's a good one. Yes, tools such as EDR or XDR, that's extended detection and response. They're not only there to help you find blunders, they're also there to make sure that the security precautions that are supposed to be in place really are there that they're really doing what you think. And so if you're keeping a lookout for things that might have gone wrong but you haven't noticed yet, you're in a much better position than just waiting for a known security alert to pop up in your dashboard. These days, that on its own is it's necessary, but it is no longer sufficient. And I really like this one. Enforce a two-step or more process for making significant changes to accounts or services, especially changes in details for outgoing payments. And it's easy to say, but why would any company or business person fall for that? It's so obvious. But if the crooks have an in, say to the CFO or the head of accounting's email, they know exactly the right time to mention the right contracts and the right amounts. And as always, two pairs of eyes better than one. And so not just something where, oh, I have to get my manager, clicks the button and it all goes through. But something like paying out a million pounds, you need to make it comparatively difficult. And ideally, you need two separate teams who investigate whether the account change should go through entirely independently. It also makes it harder for insiders to collude, of course, if they're two separate teams that are operating separately. Okay, and we've got, uh, if you see anything that doesn't look right in an email demanding your attention, assume you're being scammed. Yes, we had a naked security commenter once. I think you mentioned it on the podcast, didn't you, Doug? Uh, where they said, hey, I spotted that a scammer was inside our network sending emails because they used an emoji where I was 99% certain that the sender of that email just wouldn't have done so. Not that they don't know what emojis are, it's yeah. just not their style. And that dovetails nicely with our next tip. If you want to check details with another company based on an email, never rely on contact data provided in the email, especially when money's involved. Yes, I think you covered that elegantly last week, Doug, didn't you? By saying, you know, when there's a phone number in the email, don't phone it up and say, hi, is that Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> Always find your own way there. And then last but certainly not least, consider using internal training tools to teach your staff about scams. Unsurprisingly, Sophos has just such a tool. Uh, we're not giving that tip because we want to sound like salespeople, but Sophos, Fish Threat, that's our tool to help you. If you don't put your employees to the test where they can fail the test, and then you can use that as an opportunity to teach them how to do better next time. If you don't test them, 
The crooks are jolly well going to do it for you. And they're going to try it day after day after day. And they're not just going to try one person at a time. Anything you can do to raise your company's collective resilience has got to be a good thing. Just make sure that when you do things like phishing tests, that you handle the cases of people who fail those tests with great sympathy. Okay, great advice. And as the sun begins to set on our show for today, we do have our reader comment. And it's on this story over on Twitter, at Snowshoe Dan comments on the business email compromise story. In part, it's ironic that a dude who literally made a living off of others' small mistakes made some huge ones. Don't brag about your lifestyle on the socials if you did it illegally. Certainly he had millions of followers, and I guess he reveled in that. So he certainly went out of his way to draw attention to himself. I imagine that he might very well have been caught anyway. Though the pictures that you see in the Naked Security article came from his Instagram account via the Department of Justice charge sheet to get a warrant for his arrest. So they <laughs> used good. it as part of their own evidence to that convince the magistrate judge that this guy is not just making dimes and nickels. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, that's definitely a roller and that's definitely a Bentley. <laughs> uh-huh. All right. Thank you for setting that in, uh, Snowshoe Dan. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.